Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for Friday, October the 27th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. For the first hour, we'll recover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And here's an announcement. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal at 5 you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear City View. At 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. 9 p.m., tune in to Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal, and we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines on the front page of today's Des Moines Register. The AccuWeather forecast tells us that it will be mainly cloudy and breezy today. A morning shower in spots to the east. Winds northwest 10 to 20 miles per hour. Mainly clear tonight. Winds north 7 to 14 miles per hour. Today's high is expected to be 49 degrees with a low of 42 Looking ahead, Monday, uh, Saturday, high of 40, low of 29 with a shower in the afternoon. On Sunday, a high of 40 with a low of 25, mostly cloudy and cold. And the rest of the week, it's in the low to mid 40s. Sunrise today, 7.40 a.m. Sunset tonight, 6.16 p.m. Moonrise today, 5.43 p.m. and moon set at 6.06 a.m. Headlines on the front page of the register. Authorities search after main mass shooting. City seeking to recharge dwindling drinking water. And Honey Creek Resort operators say they'll stay open year round. Now here's Judith with our first article. Thank you, Scott. City seeking to recharge dwindling drinking water. Osceola wants state regulators to allow it to use treated wastewater from the new facility. This story by Donnell Eller. Faced with less than a year's supply of drinking water, Osceola wants state regulators to allow it to use wastewater, treated and disinfected discharge from the city's new treatment facility to help recharge its drought-diminished water source, West Lake. The community of 5,540, about 50 miles south of the Des Moines metro, would be the first in Iowa to use recycled, treated wastewater as part of its municipal supply, say city and water utility officials. They plan to meet with residents Thursday night to talk about the water challenges Osceola faces. The Southern Iowa Rural Water Association, 
also relies on Osceola for some of its supply. Three years of drought have left, have left West Lake six feet below its usual level, prompting the Osceola Waterworks Board this month to ask residents to restrict their water use. The city can safely pull about 800,000 to 900,000 gallons of water daily from the lake, but demand has reached 1.4 million gallons, they said. The water level is so low that the floating Lakeside Hotel Casino could soon hit West Lake's bottom, said Ty Wheeler, Osceola City Manager. The casino has about two feet to go before it is grounded. The company that operates it is unsure what kind of impact coming into contact with the lake bottom would have on the structure and usability of the casino, Wheeler said. The city estimates it has about 200 days of water supply available, said Brandon Patterson, the Osceola Waterworks superintendent. The city is hoping to add 100 days by increasing the height of its lowest lake intake to improve the quality of water available. Patterson said, we are trying to figure out how we can maintain our lake level and bridge the gap to get an additional water supply. Osceola and surrounding communities are seeking to build a nearly 800-acre reservoir, but that could take six to eight years, given the estimated $100 million cost and permitting challenges, Wheeler said. Recycling treated wastewater is not an immediate solution either. It would take up to two years and $16.5 million to begin reusing the effluent, effluent to recharge the West Lake watershed. The city has re submitted a request to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, which is reviewing the proposal. Tammy Krausman, the agency spokesperson, said in email, Krausman said all applicable drinking water and wastewater laws for ensuring the process will be safe for the public will apply. Without a substantial increase in rainfall, the city faces about a year before it could run dangerously low on water, Wheeler said. The city could look to the Iowa National Guard to haul in water for residents in an emergency. And he said, but nobody can bring 10 million gallons a month for our large industrial users. That would have a huge economic impact on this community, on our major employers, and the people they employ, Wheeler said. The largest is Osceola Foods, a Hormel pork plant with about 1,000 workers. Despite treated wastewater's U factor, Testing shows the water leaving the city's new $44 million wastewater plant would likely improve the water quality of West Lake, given the level of treatment the city needs to meet its new state permit requirements, Wheeler said. The treatment facility is slated to come online January 1st, and it is high-quality effluent, he said. Cities in the western United States have successfully reused wastewater discharge to address water scarcity caused by long-term drought, he said. The concept is new to Iowa, but it is not new, he said. An engineering study looking at the option includes adding more treatment to the water before it would enter an existing pond that would feed into West Lake. The city also looked at other supply options, such as drilling wells. But the nearest aquifers did not have adequate groundwater supplies to meet demand, according to the engineering study, and the larger Jordan Aquifer would be expensive to reach and access. The city also looked at buying finished water from Des Moines Waterworks, but that utility would not have enough surplus water to serve Osceola, and the cost of providing it would be prohibitive. 
Wheeler said the city hopes treated wastewater could help meet Osceola's drinking water needs as it awaits construction of the reservoir. Osceola and the proposed reservoir are in Clark County. A reservoir commission, which has purchased about 2,500 acres needed for the project, is working to secure about $65 million of the needed funding from the United States Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Osceola plans to sell bonds to cover most of the remaining costs using a local option sales tax to repay the debt, Wheeler said. The city would seek a state loan and possible grant to pay for the wastewater reclamation project. Lawsuits, legislative restrictions on using eminent domain powers to buy land for the reservoir and the project costs have delayed the Clark County plan. Wheeler uh, went on to say we should not have had the obstacles that were put in front of us in the development of this water supply. This should have already been done by now. It should not be this hard to build a public water supply. Landowners, legislators, and others have fought the project, opposing the use of eminent domain to force them to sell land for the project. And they complained that the Clark County Reservoir Commission sought too much land for the project, expanding it to offer water recreation in addition to water supply. Patterson said the Southern Iowa Rural Water Association's plan to begin operating its own water treatment plant in the new year will help reduce some of the demand on Osceola. Jeff Rice, the Rural Water Association's general manager, said we are all growing fast. The association provides water to all or parts of 13 rural counties. While Wheeler said Osceola is adding new residents and homes, Rice said the drought is driving more cattle and hog producers to tap into rural water for their livestock. Wheeler said reusing the wastewater was not something the community foresaw needing when the new wastewater plant was being built. He said, I wish five, six years ago, when we were in the throes of designing a treatment plant, we would have added recirculation into the project, but it wasn't what anyone was thinking of at the time. But now it doesn't look like we have many alternatives to mitigate the risk, he added, saying the wastewater refuse proposal would add to the increased cost that residents treatment facility. The base fee has more than doubled over the past decade, he said. Osceola Foods paid nearly 50% of the cost to build the plant. Honey Creek Resort operators say they'll stay open year-round. Long-struggling facility has whirlwind of activity. This is written by Addison Lathers of the Des Moines Register. Beth Henderson and her husband Terry got the keys to Honey Creek Resort in April. Since then, the pair say the long-struggling state-owned facility on Rathbun Lake, about 80 miles southeast of Des Moines, has seen a whirlwind of activity, including painting, updating, amenities, and installation of new attractions. Quote, we've been busy, end quote, Beth Henderson said Wednesday as the couple welcomed reporters for a look around. She goes on to say, we had a busy summer. Opened in the year 2008, Honey Creek, a $60 million pet project of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, faced declining revenues for years. The Iowa legislature in the year 2013 authorized a $33 million bailout to pay off outstanding bonds. Three years later, the state awarded a 15-year management contract to Delaware North Companies 
an operator of hotels, restaurants, and other amenities at state and national parks throughout the United States. But Delaware, too, failed to stabilize the resort, a situation that only worsened with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. It ended its contract in the year 2021, 10 years early, citing financial struggles. The DNR selected Achieva Entertainment Enterprises, excuse me, Incorporated, of which Beth Henderson is president and CEO and her husband is a board chair earlier this year to take over Honey Creek's 105-room hotel, cottages, golf course, marina, RV park, restaurant, and conference space. These days, Honey Creek is almost at capacity on the weekends, the Hendersons said, though visits are slowing down as the temperatures drop. They plan to keep the resort open year-round. Their goal? An average annual occupancy rate of 60%. Quote, we're optimistic. We know we need to get people here in these winter months, end quote, Beth Henderson said. She goes on to say, history has it that on Thanksgiving, Honey Creek was full because there was a big buffet. We're bringing that back. We're bringing the holiday weekend packages back, and we couldn't be more excited, end quote. Honey Creek Resort's new owners introduce new attractions. Under the couple's watch, the resort has been open since day one, as required by their deal with the state. They were honoring reservations and hosting a conference shortly after taking over, though that hasn't stopped them from making updates to the neglected facility. While they didn't disclose the amount they've spent on sprucing up Honey Creek, they said they are well ahead of the $1.6 million their state mandated to spend on enhancements over the next six years. Nearly every wall inside the hotel has seen a fresh coat of paint, with plans in the works to rip out the dated carpet and replace less-than-stylish furniture. A nature center, turned into a storage facility by the previous owner, underwent renovations and to become the depot, a general store serving snacks and beverages with a bourbon bar upstairs. Two horse-drawn carriages, a petting zoo, and a miniature train are now main attractions. Still coming is a coffee shop, multi-purpose arena, and tribute hall that would provide virtual exhibits, shops, concessions, and mini-golf. Quote, people say, wow, I didn't have any idea that Honey Creek did this, Terry Henderson said. Well, right now, at Honey Creek Resort by Achieva Enterprises, we do do this, and we're going to continue to make significant enhancements, end quote. Why did the Hendersons take over Honey Creek Resort? The pair who previously lived in Indianola, or excuse me, in Indiana, bought land in nearby Centerville in the year 2019, near where Beth Henderson's grandfather grew up. They were aware of Honey Creek Resort and planned to visit the facility as guests, her husband said, then began to look at the resort in a new light once they heard about the state's plan to hire a private contractor to run it. Quote, We have an agriculture business, training business, and our intent was to expand the business into Iowa. We thought we could do conferences here, end quote, Beth Henderson said. She goes on to say, this is where a lot of our customers are within driving distance. Nine months out of the year, the off months are when all your meetings for agriculture take place, end quote, her husband added. It's kind of perfect match. What the Hendersons lack in tourism experience, they say... 
they make up for in their familiarity with the private and public partnerships. Achieva provides technical training, communications, and government and public affairs related services for agriculture companies. Terry Henderson previously worked in the government and public affairs office for the agri-science company now called Corteva. He and his wife both previously ran for office in Indiana. While the pair have yet to seek assistance from within the tourism industry, they say they have had extensive discussions with Debbie Durham, director of the Iowa Economic Development and Iowa Finance Authorities. The couple say that they first put together a proposal and a video of what they believed Honey Creek Resort could become to present at a PACT Iowa, which PACT stands for Promoting Appanoose and Centerville Together, meeting that Governor Reynolds attended. Terry Henderson recalled Reynolds walking up to them and asking if they would be interested in helping privatize the resort. Quote, we told her, yes, we would be, provided we could work together, end quote, he said. Something we talk about a lot is skin in the game. Believe me, we have skin in the game. What will the Hendersons do differently with the resort? The resort's previous operator, Delaware, was supposed to pay the state a portion of its profits, $1 million a year, after Honey Creek's annual revenues hit $7 million. But the resort's revenues and occupancy dropped even before the pandemic hit from $6.2 million in fiscal year 2018 to $5.9 million in fiscal year 2019. According to PACT Executive Director Michael Mathis, that loss was due to the company's decision to close the, in the off-season. Honey Creek previously had been open year-round. Quote, the state who, in our opinion, should not be in the resort business, hired the wrong company, end quote, Mathis said. If you're closed half the year, it's hard to make a profit. The Hendersons are banking on correcting Delaware's misstep as their key to success. The resort not only will stay open year-round, but will offer seasonal activities to bring guests back over and over again. Haunted hay rides with headless horsemen, sleigh rides, and Christmas villages are a few of the offerings Honey Creek will have in store as the seasons change, they said. With improvements ongoing, the couple hope the winter months will be a turning point for the resort. Quote, we're doing the priority things first, but we are committed to making Honey Creek what it can be, what it should be, end quote, Beth Henderson said story from today's front page of the Des Moines Register. Authorities search after main mass shooting. At least 18 killed people told to shelter in place. The story from USA Today by Christopher Can, Jorge L. Ortiz, Mina Arshad, Thao Nugan, and Vanessa Ariando. From Lewiston, Maine. Residents of this small, close-knit city, still huddling, terrified in their homes, exchanged messages of comfort after a gunman killed at least 18 people and injured 13 on Wednesday night. The rampage took place at Shemenga's Bar and Grill and Spare Time Recreation, a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine, a city of about 38,400 residents, about 35 miles north of Portland. Seven people at the bowling alley were killed, one female and six males, authorities said. At the bar, eight people were killed, all males. Three people later died at the hospital. 
Eight people remain hospitalized at Central Maine Medical Center Thursday afternoon, including three in critical condition. Hundreds of law enforcement agents searched for suspect Robert Card, 40, considered armed and dangerous. Authorities have not given a possible motive. Zoe Levesque, 10, told WMTWTV she was grazed by a bullet at spare time. It's scary, she said. I never thought I'd grow up and get a bullet in my leg. And it's just like, why? Why do people do this? The bowling alley released a statement on Facebook. None of this seems real, but unfortunately it is. We are devastated for our community and our staff. We lost some amazing and wholehearted people from our bowling family and community. Since 2006, more than 560 mass killings have been reported in the United States, according to a database kept by USA Today, the Associated Press, and Northeastern University. Wife and father await the worst. Steve Vozella and Billy Brackett, 48, went to Shemengas for a cornhole and dart night with fellow deaf adults. Wife Megan Vozella and father William Brackett told USA Today. As of Thursday afternoon, neither had heard from their loved ones, and both expected the worst. William Brackett, 80, said, I kept calling him and calling him and calling him and never got an answer. Brackett has been unable to go inside the facilities to look for his son. He said, I can't even go get his truck. That's the kind of thing that does not happen in the state of Maine. It always happens somewhere else, someplace else. Megan Vosella, who also is deaf, said on Facebook Messenger, I am so overwhelmed and angry. It has to stop with this world, she said, referring to the deadly attacks. Local business owners, a tight-knit community. Billy Jane Cook was at a candidate's forum when gunfire broke out a couple of miles away. The owner of the inn at the Agora is running for city council. It's horrific, Cook told USA Today. She went on to say, I know people who've lived here their whole lives, and they are waiting to see who died last night because we will all know people who did. Alan Smith co-owns the forage market between where the two shootings happened. Staff often visit the bowling alley. His family locked the doors of their home, which he almost, we almost never do, he said. The violence has rocked the tight-knit community, where he said people are almost always one degree of connection from one another. Residents are reaching out with a lot of shared concern, camaraderie, and messaging for people being okay and general concerns for people who have lost others, Smith said. Who is CARD? CARD is a sergeant first class assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 304th Infantry Regiments in Saco, Maine, according to a statement from U.S. Army spokesperson Bryce Duby. His unit supported West Point summer training in July, but Duby's statement said there was no indication CARD instructed or participated in any training, contrary to earlier reports. The Army did not train him as a firearms instructor, the, sta the statement said, nor did he serve in that capacity for the Army, end quote. Card enlisted in December 2002 and had no combat deployments. His military specialty is petroleum supply. 
A United States official who spoke on condition of anonymity said commanders noticed in mid-July that Card was acting erratically and sent him to be evaluated at a hospital, according to the Associated Press. The police bulletin circulating Wednesday said Card previously reported hearing voices and threatened to carry out a shooting at the military's training base in Sacco. Biden offers full federal support. President Joe Biden on Thursday ordered the flags to fly at half-staff at the White House, public buildings, embassies, military posts, and naval stations as a mark of respect for the victims of the senseless acts of violence, a White House statement said. Biden spoke with Maine Governor Janet Mills and other public officials Wednesday night and, quote, quote, offered full federal support in the wake of this horrific attack, end quote. Attorney General Merrick Garland closely monitored the situation and federal law enforcement assisted a spokes assisted I'm sorry a spokesperson I'm not sure where that was going Vice President Kamala Harris said Americans don't have to choose between the second amendment and common sense gun safety laws she said in a statement Congress can and must make background checks universal pass red flag laws ban high-capacity magazines, and renew the assault weapons ban, she said. Postponing a historic celebration. Thursday and Friday were supposed to be a huge celebration of Bates College's new president, the first black leader at the 168-year-old private liberal arts college. New President Gary Jenkins wrote the college community, saying... Given the tragedy and the current circumstances, we have decided to postpone all inauguration events. Bates senior Hannah Orton left hockey practice just after the news broke. Not thinking it serious, the team went to the dining hall for dinner. Um, she told USA Today, that's where we went on lockdown. I was there until, nine, until 5 a.m. Maine has lax gun control laws and few shootings. Maine has much looser gun laws than its northeastern neighbors. Giffords, the gun violence Preve prevention group, gave the state an F on its annual scorecard. The state does not extend background check requirements beyond federal requirements or ban assault-style weapons or large-capacity magazines. And Maine is a shall-issue per permitless carry state meaning anyone who can legally possess a firearm may carry one, either openly or concealed. Maine has relatively few gun deaths, with about 178 people dying from gun violence in 2022. Lewiston's history is vibrant and diverse. Lewiston is the second most populous city in Maine. It started as a small town in the 17th century and grew into a thriving mill city. The city is home to one of the largest French-speaking populations in the United States and is the heart of Maine's Franco-American heritage, according to the state's Office of Tourism. More recently, it has emerged as a major center for African immigration. The city prides itself on being a place of opportunity, according to the municipal website. Thank you, Judith. Now we'll move on to the Metro and Iowa page, and the top story there is Council Member Fights Against Taco Truck, Taqueria Coming to Highland Park Neighborhood. This is written by Virginia Bereda of the Des Moines Register. 
A neighborhood favorite taqueria is going mobile in the Highland Park neighborhood despite a Des Moines City Council member's attempt to thwart it. Council member Linda Westergaard pushed back against a zoning change at a Monday night council meeting that would allow El Michoacano Taqueria to operate a food truck at 415 East Euclid Avenue on Des Moines' northeast side. The owner, Gerardo Perez, already owns El Michoacano Taqueria at 2922 Merle Hay Road. He purchased the Euclid building in the Highland Park neighborhood in May with plans to turn the space into a retail store and bring a complimentary taco truck to the property's parking lot. Perez, whose request to rezone the property from a neighborhood district to a mixed-use district, had already been approved by the Plan and Zoning Commission in September, needed one last green light from the city council to bring his mobile food truck to fruition, a continuation of a business that he says took him years to get off the ground. The spectacle played out for half an hour Monday night, inciting audible reactions from an invested audience at City Hall. Gathered community members groaned and scoffed as Westergaard, whose ward encompasses the Highland Park neighborhood, peppered Perez with questions, and then scolded audience members for their reactions, asking them for quiet. Tensions escalated further when other city council members came in defense of the business owner, and just as Westergaard moved to delay the final vote, which would have triggered the item to come before council twice more over the course of four weeks, a local business owner from the audience made an appeal. Claps erupted from the audience as Westergaard, in a reluctant 11th hour vote, voted alongside her peers to pass the item and waive a second and third reading. Westergaard later told the Des Moines Register she didn't know about the request until it was discussed at the meeting. She said they welcome him into the neighborhood and she's glad he's coming. Perez said he's now able to open the taco truck as soon as possible. Quote, the benefit is that we can get a better life for them to improve the business and our family, Perez told the Register. More income so, you know, our family can live better and we try to help the community with our food. We try to make customers happy, end quote. Westergaard says, I just can't support this. Westergaard, who was initially the sole vocal opponent to the rezoning among her council peers, said her disapproval stemmed from the concerns over having a vacant building. The property previously housed the almost free shop. Westergaard, who told the council she drives by the property every day, said that neighbors have brought up concerns about the building falling into disrepair since Perez bought it. She said weeds have grown around the property and junk has ended up on the fence lines that divide from neighboring properties. She argued that granting Perez the rezoning to add the food truck didn't provide any incentive for him to clean or maintain the building itself. Quote, my concern is we're going to change the zoning and then that building's going to stay vacant for the next five years because I haven't seen any improvements since it's been vacant, end quote, Westergaard said. Perez told the council his plan is to use the building as a retail store that will sell restaurant and food truck supplies. The food truck, to be named El Mikoacano Taqueria Mobile, 
and be located in the parking lot is meant to be opened in tandem to attract customers. The truck would have a similar concept to his current taqueria on Merle Hay Road, which serves up Mexican dishes like tacos, tortas, quesadillas, and sopes. He said repairs and remodeling had already been completed outside and inside the Euclid building, and that he'd been working to stock the store in preparation for what he called a grand opening. He added he didn't hear negative comments from neighbors when he shared his rezoning proposal ahead of the plan and zoning meeting. Quote, I can open the business tomorrow with you guy, your guys' approval, end quote, Perez told the council. Westergaard responded to the, that the site would not be the best spot for a food truck because of its proximity to people's houses. Quote, if we change the zoning, you can be there forever, end quote, Westergaard said. At one point during the back and forth, Westergaard warned that Perez was likely approaching or had already approached a six-month deadline by which his building would lose its ability to operate as a retail space due to its vacant status. She suggested that the council vote to give the owner a conditional use permit until Perez was able to fix the store. Quote, I think maybe you need to take a step back, end quote, she told Perez. She goes on to say, I just can't support this, and I want you to have a food truck. I mean, if you could do it temporarily, end quote. Cody Christensen, Director of Development Services, told the council that once a property is determined to be vacant for six months, then it loses its grandfather rights, which allows the property to continue operating as a retail space. When a business loses that status, it would have to go through the rezoning process again. Christensen, Christensen confirmed the Euclid building has not yet lost its grandfather rights. The reasoning Christensen added would al rezoning, excuse me, would allow the food truck to get added to the property and allow other uses to come into the building. But Westergaard wasn't convinced. Quote, I still don't like the idea that we're going to change the zoning so we can put a food truck there without any plans for anything else, end quote, she said. She goes on to say, and you can say, we're going to do this, but it hasn't been done for six months and I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen any repairs, end quote. Westergaard also raised questions about parking space issues, noting a concern that there's not enough for both the business and the truck. The site currently has 10 parking spaces, according to a report from the Plan and Zoning Commission. Quote, this proposal that's been brought forward has been looked at by city staff and it's been determined to be a viable site for both retail use and the food truck, end quote, Christensen responded. But together, Westergaard asked, yes, he replied. Des Moines City Council members chime in on dispute. Amid the discussion at large council member Connie Bozen, a candidate for Des Moines mayor, said she thinks the city should hire a staff member to guide new business owners through the process and help get them open. Council member Josh Mandelbaum, also a mayoral candidate, chimed into the conversation, noting the city council was creating barriers for small business owners. Quote, the only barrier is us, end quote, Mandelbaum said, addressing the council and Christensen. He goes on to say, if we approve uh, if we approve this right now, 
he could start his business after this is approved, correct? End quote. Westergaard reiterated her concerns about neighbors being tired of seeing empty buildings. She again offered the alternative of a conditional use permit until he opened the store. Christensen said the staff had approved it because they'd heard the desire to allow businesses to open to generate revenue and then be able to make improvements. Quote, this action allows this gentleman to generate some revenue for the site and build up some of that to reinvest in the property, end quote, he said. The scene escalated, shifting into a tense moment between Westergaard and Mandelbaum. Quote, he doesn't have to do anything else ever to that building, and that's what concerns me, end quote, Westergaard pressed. She goes on to say, it's an empty building, but I want the incentive to be there to be, end quote. Quote, I mean, he owns the building. He has every incentive to improve it. He can't if we deny him the opportunity to operate as a business, end quote, Mandelbaum said. He goes on to say, this is the next step. At this point, our action is the only th barrier getting him open, and that's wrong. Well, Josh, it's not your neighborhood. It's not your neighborhood. It's my neighborhood, Westergaard said, and I know the building, I know the neighbor, how the neighbors feel about the empty buildings. Josh goes on to say, it's our community, and drawing a yay from the audience. In a reluctant shift, city council approves rezoning. Westergaard later turned her attention back to Perez, asking if the request was passed, how soon he'd be open. Tomorrow, he responded. Westergaard made a motion to move the first reading and revisit the item in a few weeks. It was seconded by at-large council member Carl Voss. In a Hail Mary attempt, Scott Selix, co-founder of Lua Brewing and a member of Monday Night's audience, pleaded with council members to not thwart the process. Quote, even if you push it back two weeks, the cash flow is huge, Selix said. I mean, it's really hard. I look at this guy and he's up here working to open a business in an empty building. I just think that it should be approved, end quote. Westergaard asked Perez if he was okay with waiting two weeks. Quote, I was thinking if I get it approved tonight, I was thinking to go and pay the permit tomorrow and start the food trailer on Wednesday, Perez said. I've got everything already set up, end quote. The food truck's grand opening is Friday at 4 p.m., according to its website. What happened on Iowa's deployment to the border? This story by Katie Aiken. Governor Kim Reynolds vigorously defended Iowa's $2 million deployment to the southern border on Wednesday, criticizing the way President Joe Biden has approached border policies and emphasizing the harms that drug trafficking poses to Iowans. Reynolds said at a, news, a Wednesday news conference, for more than two years, Texas has been ground zero for the national security and humanitarian crisis that we see taking place on the southern border. As governor, I have a responsibility to protect the safety and well-being of Iowans, and protecting them at home starts with protecting the southern border, she said. Reynolds, a Republican, sent 109 National Guard soldiers to Texas from August 2nd to September 1st. 31 state patrol officers and agents followed, deploying from August 31st to October 2nd. 
Reynolds and officials with the Iowa Department of Public Safety and Iowa National Guard gave a briefing Wednesday on the two-month deployment, which was funded using federal COVID-19 relief money. Here's what we know about the mission and why Reynolds and other state officials say it was necessary. What did the Iowa troops and officers do at the southern border? In May, Texas Governor Greg Abbott asked his fellow governors to send reinforcements to help state law enforcement at the border. Iowa's National Guard soldiers partnered with the Texas National Guard to monitor Ill illegal crossing points and to apprehend individuals who entered the country illegally. Our soldiers assisted and supported with the apprehension by Customs and Border Patrol of approximately 1,700 illegal immigrants, the surrender of roughly 1,200 immigrants to CBP, the arrest of two individuals with outstanding U.S. warrants, and a large number of migrants who were turned back at the Mexico border at illegal crossing zones. That's end quote. It was from Major General Stephen Osborne, Adjutant General of the Iowa National Guard. The Iowa State Patrol troopers and agents paired up with the Statement Department of Public Safety to do regular patrol routes and to investigate smuggling attempts. According to a news release from the governor's office, the Iowa Department of Public Safety officers were, quote, directly involved in 40 human smuggling cases, 11 drug trafficking cases, 14 narcotics arrests, 6 weapons arrests, 42 vehicle pursuits, 35 vehicle bailouts, 11 stolen vehicle recoveries, and 491 illegal migrants were turned over to Customs and Border Patrol, the statement said. This was not the first time Iowa personnel went to Texas. In 2021, Reynolds deployed about 28 Iowa State Patrol troopers to the border for 14 days in the Del Rio area in southwest Texas, where they accompanied Texas law enforcement on patrols, assisted with humanitarian efforts, helped disrupt criminal networks, and investigated human smuggling, officials said at the time. How much did Iowa's southern border mission cost? Iowa used nearly two I'm sorry, $2 million of federal funds for its most recent border mission. Reynolds said, Iowa's mission to support Operation Lone Star cost a combined total of approximately $1.93 million, but not a penny will be paid by the state. Instead, it will be paid using federal funds allocated to Iowa through the American Rescue Plan, she said. The American Rescue Plan is a COVID-19 relief package that Biden signed into law in 2021 and that Republicans uniformly opposed. The law gave billions of federal funds to states as they recovered from the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Reynolds quipped, since the president and his administration have refused to rescue America's borders, we've done our part on their behalf. Why did Governor Kim Reynolds send a mission to the border? Reynolds argued that Iowa is especially at risk for drug trafficking from Mexico. Reynolds said, Iowa's location at the intersection of two major interstates provides human traffickers and drug cartels a direct route from Mexico to the Midwest and from 2020 to 2022, anal seizures, a 100% increase in meth seizures, and we have seen drug-related deaths increase by 35%. We have seen unprecedented levels of fentanyl, 
meth, and cocaine now exist in our region's drug supply, and it is putting Iowans at risk, end her quote. It is unclear exactly how many of those Iowa drug seizures and overdose deaths can be linked to drugs smuggled across the southern border. Iowa Department of Public Safety Commissioner uh, Stephen Bayens presented Iowa's drug seizure totals from March to May 2023. Iowa law enforcement officers seized 335 pounds of meth, 15,350 fentanyl pills, 3 pounds of heroin, 136 grams of crack cocaine, 72 pounds of cocaine, and 80 pounds of marijuana. Bayon said officers uncovered seven cases within that 90-day window that had, quote, a direct evidentiary link to the Mexican cartels, end quote. He said Iowa law enforcement started tracking the number of cases tied to the southern border in 2019. According to Bayans, the number of Iowa cases tied to the southern border have spiked since 2021. Reynolds also made a broader argument that illegal immigrants to the United States could be a national security threat. And Reynolds said, when you see the number of terrorists that they've apprehended that are crossing our borders, my God, think of the ones that have gotten by us that they didn't apprehend, end quote. According to NBC News, 160 migrants who were on FBI's terrorist watch list were apprehended at the southern border in fiscal year 2023, which ended in July. Most fentanyl enters the United States through legal ports of entry. Illegal immigration and drug trafficking are often conflated, but most fentanyl is not being brought into the country by migrants crossing between entry points. The Drug Enforcement Agency reported in 2020 that Mexican criminal organizations most commonly concealed drugs in vehicles and trucks that enter the United States through legal ports of entry. NPR reported in August that close to 90% of fentanyl is seized at legal ports of entry, and nearly all of those smugglers are individuals who are authorized to enter the country. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in February that it is, uh, quote, unequivocally false that fentanyl is being brought to the United States by non-citizens encountered in between the ports of entry who are making claims of Credible Fear and Seeking Asylum, CBS reports. And fentanyl has been on the rise for years. According to CBS News, fentanyl seizures at United States legal ports of entry quadrupled in 2019 and 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic made it much harder to travel internationally and more potent, easily concealable drugs like fentanyl become preferable for traffickers. Player's father recorded his calls. Gaming officials seemed to agree with criticism. This is written by Tyler Jett of the Des Moines Register. In a phone conversation recorded by the father of an Iowa State football player, Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission Administrator Brian Orilko appeared to agree with criticism of a gambling probe against several college athletes, according to a new court motion. According to a transcript of one of the phone calls, he said, quote, a lot of people don't agree with how things were handled, end quote. Defense attorney Van Plum argued in the motion Wednesday that prosecutors need to give him copies of records from the Gaming Commission 
writing that transcripts of Orilco's phone conversations indicate he has detailed knowledge of the gambling probe. Plum also said Orilco was not forthcoming during an October 20th court hearing with all the information he knows about a series of criminal cases against the athletes, writing in Wednesday's motion that the recordings prove, quote, Administrator Orilco obviously has more knowledge of this investigation than testified under oath, end quote. Orilco did not respond to a call and email seeking comment. As part of Wednesday's filing, Plum attached transcripts of what he said are three recorded phone conversations between Orilco and Brad Hanneke, the father of Iowa State redshirt senior tight end Deshaun Hanneke. One of the calls, in one of the calls, Brad Hanneke complained about the validity of the criminal charges against his son, which centered on his alleged use of his mother's DraftKings account to place bets. Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations agents charged him with identity theft under $1,500 and tampering with records. Quote, what's the difference between what's going on here and say, do you have a Netflix account or an Amazon account or your family members? Hanukkah said, according to the transcript Plum filed with the court. Yeah, Orilco said. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. I don't know, Hanukkah said. What a mess. I know, Orilco said. Story County prosecutors agreed last month to drop the charges against Deshaun Hanneke after Plum argued that they had missed a deadline to produce an indictment against the tight end. Meanwhile, Plum attached the transcripts of the calls between Brad Hanneke and Orilco in Wednesday's filing on behalf of another of his clients, former Iowa State and current Denver Broncos defensive N. Ioma Uwazurik, I think. (laughs) The second-year pro, whom the NFL suspended this summer over accusations that he placed bets on Broncos games and another person's fan on another person's fan duel account last year, faces charges of identity theft under $1,500 and tampering with records. Uwazurik and Deshaun Hanneke were two of eight current and former Iowa State athletes charged in the DCI's probe. Prosecutors have also charged five University of Iowa athletes as well as a student manager. Lawyer says, did state investigator act improperly in gambling probe? Wednesday's court filing is part of Plum's motion for evidence from the Gaming Commission, including written communications among the commission, the DCI, and GeoComply, a company that tracks the location of phones used to place online sports bets to ensure they're being made legally. Plum has questioned whether DCI agents improperly used GeoComply's software to find athletes placing bets on their own games. During a hearing on the issue October 20th, five days before releasing the transcripts of Orilco's phone calls, he asked the Gaming Commission Administrator whether his office produced records tied to the athlete's gambling. Quote, there were no documents that our offices would have provided as part of the probe, end quote, Orilco said. He goes on to say, our office did not conduct these investigations. We did not receive a document as such from GeoComply or DCI, end quote. 
Prosecutors have resisted Plum's motion, saying the Gaming Commission is a non-police entity that did not conduct the criminal investigation. Instead, the Gaming Commission is investigating whether FanDuel and DraftKings followed state policies aimed at preventing users from placing bets with other people's accounts. Assistant Story County Attorney David Fountain argued in the hearing that Plum's request for Gaming Commission evidence was too broad, calling it, quote, essentially a request for a dragnet review of the state's entire file, end quote. Fountain added that he did not believe his office had the ability to gather records from the Gaming Commission. He also said in a written court motion that the criminal case came solely out of DCI. Quote, that's where Mr. Plum's investigation should start, end quote, Fountain told the judge. What the Gaming Commission had said during his court testimony. Most of Arilco's testimony centered on GeoComply's software. Under cross-examination from Plum, he said his staff uses the software to detect whether people place bets from multiple accounts with a single phone. When the software detects that, act that activity, he said, investigators probe whether someone has stolen another user's account or is laundering money. In August of the year 2020, Orilco emailed GeoComply, giving the company permission to let DCI agents use its software. He said the DCI could use the computer system to help uphold an administrative code that dictates how sports books like FanDuel and DraftKings can operate in Iowa. Orilco testified last week that he didn't necessarily think GeoComply needed the gaming commissioner's permission to give DCI access, but he added, quote, if that was a possibility, that was one reason why we crafted the response the way we did, end quote. He also reiterated that his office did not conduct the criminal investigation. He said the DCI gave him, quote, some information, end quote, in July about athletes who may have illegally gambled. He said the commission is using the information to determine whether sports books like FanDuel and DraftKings violated state gambling codes. But Arilco added that one employee did use GeoComply software to investigate whether Iowa college athletes gambled. He did not provide more information about that probe, and a prosecutor argued Friday that the Gaming Commission's inquiry may not have been tied to the DCI investigation. Asked about the details of the DCI's case against athletes, Orilco said, quote, we may not specifically have first-hand knowledge, end quote. I am aware of the investigation and received some information, end quote, he said at another point. What the Gaming Commission had told an Iowa State football player's father. Six weeks before the hearing, during one of his recorded calls with Brad Hanica, Orilco indicated that he would offer up more information about the case if a lawyer put him on the stand. When Hanica asked on September the 7th if a company like DraftKings or FanDuel had told the DCI that athletes were betting, Orilco said, quote, I don't believe that, end quote according to the transcript. He added that he couldn't tell Hanukkah how the DCI began investigating the athletes, quote, because I don't want to get myself in criminal trouble, end quote. I get that, Brad Hanukkah said. This is all going to come out in the, these court documents. 100%, Orilko said. And I know if 
it will if somebody were to depose me or anybody from our team in a setting where I could actually speak freely about this, but I, the commission, was not involved in this investigation, end quote. At the same time, O'Rilco told Hanika the DCI didn't keep his office in the loop on many parts of the case. Quote, frankly, they don't share stuff, uh, O'Rilco said, and we may not know everything anyway because we're not certified peace officers and they wouldn't have any obligation to share that information with us, end quote. He added that his employees didn't think they would find any problems with how FanDuel or DraftKings operated in Iowa. He said he only has a two-person staff that looks into those problems. Typically, he said, they rely on the companies to report their own errors. Quote, if they were ever to be caught doing something that they shouldn't have or not reporting something, those would be historically our stiffest penalties, end quote, Orilco said. And so they would voluntarily report. It's just a bad deal. Hanukkah, who declined to comment to the Des Moines Register this week, recorded at least three phone calls with Orilco from June to September. Orilco told the player's father he would answer his questions to help him understand how the criminal process in the case worked. At times, Orilco expressed sympathy for the Hanukkah family. Quote, I feel bad for you guys, end quote, he said on July, June 8th. I really do. I am sorry you have to deal with this. Orilco also suggested that other law enforcement officials were not convinced that the DCI should be bringing criminal cases against the players. During a June 13th call, Hanukkah said his family was frustrated that they had to wait so long to learn the outcome of the case against his son. Iowa State announced that players were under investigation a month earlier. Orilco said during the call that the case might be moving slowly because the DCI agents needed to convince prosecutors to file charges in court. Quote, I don't know if everybody looks at it the same way that the DCI looks at it, end quote, he said. It's just a bad deal, he added, and I hope things work out. During a September 7th call, Hanukkah questioned how the DCI agents obtained search warrants for the case. Quote, it's a really good question, end quote, Orilco said. And yeah, I mean, you know, off the record, you know, the same question goes for the county attorneys too, end quote. He added, quote, a lot of people don't agree with how things have been handled, end quote. Judy? Firefighter died when vehicle struck by truck. This story by Kyle Werner. An Iowa firefighter was killed in the line of duty while responding to a field fire. Anthony Hoffman, 43, a 17-year veteran of the Ionia Volunteer Fire Department, was driving a converted UTV in response to the call Sunday when he attempted to pass a slow-moving tractor, according to an Iowa State Patrol report. A fire truck following behind Hoffman also attempted to pass and sideswiped the UTV, the report said. Hoffman's UTV rolled and he was ejected. The report did not name the driver of the fire truck. Quote, Tony was very dedicated to the department and the community, and this huge loss is and will be felt by many, um, the volunteer fire department wrote in a Facebook post. Ionia is a town of about 230 people in northeast Iowa. Governor Kim Reynolds ordered flags to be flown at half-staff from sunrise to sunset on Friday in honor of Hoffman. 
She said in a news release, Anthony Hoffman's service and dedication to the Ionia community will never be forgotten. Iowa is stronger because of Anthony Hoffman, who volunteered to put his life on the line to protect his community. As we lower flags, let us honor his legacy and service. She also ordered flags at half-staff for the victims of the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, on Wednesday night. The order remains in effect till Monday. Flags will be flown at half-staff at the Capitol and on all buildings, grounds, and facilities throughout the state.